The presenting sponsor this season is Subaru. As a group of adventurers, you've probably heard of Subaru, but let me tell you about one of their cars that's a fan favorite, the 2020 Subaru Forester. Here are a couple reasons to love the Forester. Let's start with something we all care about, safety. The 2020 Forester has driver-focused distraction mitigation system, which helps guards against distracted driving. Have more than one person driving in the car? You can set it up so it recognizes up to five drivers. Technology's amazing. Next on the list is that Subaru is built to last. According to Experian Automotive, 97% of Forester vehicles sold in the last 10 years are still on the road today. It's hard to say goodbye to your Subaru. And last but not least is the fact that the 2020 Forester is the only non-luxury SUV that includes standard symmetrical all-wheel drive, which means better handling and a quicker response to road conditions. What's not to love about the 2020 Forester? You can learn more about everything the car has to offer at Subaru.com. You can find details and a disclaimer about the driver-focused technology in our show notes. Define yourself as a fat cyclist. Like why, why do you use those words? It's really about borrowing from people who have already been doing this work. It took me a really long time of knowing about that work before I was comfortable calling myself that. Attaching then cyclists to it challenges what people think of as a cyclist. I hope when people hear fat cyclists, they think, oh, I'm fat and I like to ride my bike. You know, maybe I'm a fat cyclist too. According to Kaylee Kornhauser, Mother Nature is for everyone, including fat people. Kaylee calls herself a fat cyclist, though in the past she was hesitant to use both of those words. As an athlete and body positivity activist, Kaylee is challenging the idea that your body shape defines whether or not you belong in the outdoors. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. While Kaylee's cycling journey has had highs and lows, she eventually realized that she didn't have to have a specific type of body to, quote, be a cyclist. She could be a cyclist in the body she already had. When Kaylee made that discovery, she became vocal about body activism and cycling. Just last fall, she wrote an article for Bicycling.com about the lack of visibility of larger bodies in the cycling world, a cause for which she has become an outspoken voice. Whether it's the promotional materials for events, advertisements for brands or Instagram feeds, Kaylee's tired of not seeing people who look like her in the cycling world. I figured we would just start with with this really powerful article I read that you had written, and it was in bicycling.com, and the title is, I'm a fat cyclist and I don't need to fix my body. My weight doesn't need to change, but the bike world's attitude toward me does. That's a bold title. Yeah. Yeah. And the title came after the the article, which felt kind of bold to write. I did want it to make a statement and catch people's attention, even if they just read the title, to get them thinking about um, body size and how people in larger bodies might use bicycling to change their bodies or not change their bodies in a magazine that has traditionally been about people changing their bodies through cycling. So tell me 
a little bit more about why you wrote that piece and sort of the message you hope to convey. Yeah, it started out, I was just going to recommend some plus size bike clothes in the article. (laughs) Um, But I wrote an email attached to my recommendations to the editors um, with like a little bit of a rant, I think (laughs) I might call it, um, where I just talked about how clothing is one of the limitations to uh, to people in larger bodies getting into this sport, but it's not the only limitation. And I don't think it's even the biggest limitation. And so um, I wrote this, this email and then from there, we kind of turned it into a piece um, that I don't know if I was even at the time ready to write. I think I became ready to write it as like by writing it. Um, And the, I guess there's a few different things I was hoping to communicate to people. I hope that it speaks to people who are in a larger body that either cycle and felt like they weren't seen as a cyclist or people who aren't cycling right now because of their body size and see it as a, a way in. Um, but I also was hoping to communicate to people in smaller bodies, more traditionally athletic bodies, letting them know that just because someone's in a larger body, they're not necessarily doing the sport to become smaller, that we can accept people the way that they enter into cycling and they can be a cyclist on the the very first day. And I wanted to talk to the bike industry in the piece and talk about what the industry can do to make uh, people in larger bodies feel more included in the community. So I guess I was trying to do a lot in one thing and I hope that <laughs> <laughs> maybe it could have been split into multiple articles. I think um, it was great. I mean, I'd learned so much reading that article and I want to talk about body image really quickly, just because that's something a lot of us struggle with. Like I did a lot as a kid, you know, how, how did you come to that realization that, you know, you could accept your body for what it was and, and, I read that at first you use cycling as a way to try to make your body smaller. And there's no sport that has ever made me hungrier than cycling in my life because you burn (laughs) so many damn calories when you're riding for that long. Like that's kind of one of the reasons why I hated cycling because I just felt like I'd eat all the time and it was annoying to me. Yeah, it is kind of annoying. (laughs) This is, this is a hard question. I'm sorry, but, but I think it's important to talk about because I know there's other people who can relate. Yeah. And I think maybe the optics, because I talk about myself as a fat cyclist and uh, try to do this work of body size inclusivity is that like I have it all figured out. Like the truth is that I still struggle with body image. Um, the, The entire world is telling us to be smaller. And so it's it's an everyday challenge to train yourself to think it's okay not to be. And I think like, it's something I haven't figured out perfectly. There's times in my life still where I still think, oh, what if I get some, maybe like, maybe on this trip, I'll get smaller. You know, I try to push back against that because inherently that's that, that thought is fat phobic. Even though I'm a fat person, I can still be a person who has fat phobia. I think we all kind of have this fear of what if I get even bigger? And even as a fat person, I'm a small fat person. And so I have to push back against phobias of getting larger myself. I've done a lot of work through therapy and through working with uh, actually a group 
that focuses on body trust and intuitive eating and joyful movement. And so these are like nutritionists that have um, training and therapy as well. And I've worked with other women in larger bodies in these group spaces to sort of identify, you know, that it's okay to be the exact size that our bodies are, that our bodies might have always been meant to be the size that we are, or even larger, and that we should eat based on when we're hungry, stop eating based on when we're full, uh, that we should move our bodies because it makes us feel good and not in ways that don't make our body feel good. Um, and so I think that work is what gave me the confidence to start talking about these things publicly, probably, is that I had this support from this community of people doing this work and that I saw people on Instagram posting things like that. But yeah, it's not it's not like all of a sudden you have complete confidence and you never have, like struggle with it again. I think, you know, being positive about your body is not like a an on off switch. It's like you know, it's a work in progress. Um, at least that's what they tell me. <laughs> I think you have a really good attitude about it. But I think you said a couple of things here that are interesting to me. One is and you didn't say this outright, but like you don't need to punish yourself because of the body you're in and like. Also, you don't need to wait until you're a certain body to go do whatever the F you want to do. Like my girlfriend would always say, hey, Shelby, Oprah didn't wait till she was 10 pounds skinnier to be Oprah Winfrey. And like to me, that always like really impacted me. You didn't wait until you were X body to go be badass Kaylee Kornhauser cyclist. (laughs) Man, those are the points. Kaylee learned how to ride a bike when she was a kid, and she always liked leisure riding on paved paths. But she fell out of cycling for a while until she was in college in Salt Lake City. At the time, Kaylee couldn't afford a car, so she bought herself a bike for $75, which helped her get to and from the local grocery store and to work. Being on the road as a cyclist made her aware of the local cycling community, and she decided she wanted to be part of the club. So she saved up, bought herself a nicer bike, and decided it was time to start calling herself a cyclist. So I'm really curious, you know, because you were kind of cycling for necessity. You didn't have a car. That's not easy in college. I had a skateboard in college. It didn't go as fast (laughs) as a bike. It totally sucked. But how did you transition from cycling for necessity to cycling for just joy? Yeah, I think that's been a journey too. I think at first, you know, maybe I didn't wait for my body to look a certain way to start cycling, but I thought when I started cycling, my body would look a certain way. And I think at the beginning, a lot of my cycling was kind of punishment. Like it wasn't always joyful. A lot of times I would go on these really hard rides because I had this bike that was supposed to go on these hard rides. And I wanted to be the person who went on those hard rides, whether or not they were fun. When I bought my bike, I chose to sign up for this ride called RAGBRAI. Um, And I always get the acronym wrong, but it's like Registers Annual Ride Across Iowa or something. Uh, It's basically like a drunk booze cruise across Iowa, really. (laughs) Sounds kind of fun. (laughs) It's really fun. Um, Yeah. And if folks haven't done like a multi-day ride, it's completely supported. And you bike like 50 to 70 miles on a route through these little really wonderful towns in Iowa and people 
stand out uh, outside their farms with food and oh, and so drinks cool. and there's beer tents and so it's and a really camp you, at night and you camp or you I oh, mean fun. Plenty, plenty of people stay in a hotel or, or it's even RV. better <laughs> you <Yeah>. glamp <laughs> and it's so fun it's just it's a really good sense of community so I had purchased my bike I knew about this ride in Iowa and so I got some friends to sign up and and I had like six months to get ready. That's And that was sort of the transition period for me then. But it was also not like necessarily a super positive thing because I thought I needed to look a certain way or be able to ride a certain speed uh, to be able to do this ride. And in actuality, like you could kind of get off your couch and try this thing. It might hurt, but <laughs> there's all sorts of people out there doing it whatever way works for them. But I don't know. I, I struggled because it was definitely a time uh, when I first started cycling a lot, I wouldn't always call it joyful movement, but it's what gave me the path towards treating it joyfully. So for me, at least, and I don't think it's true for everyone, I needed to go through that stage where I was punishing myself um, to get to the point where I was doing it simply for fun. And now biking is so different for me, but I think it's in large part because I feel like my identity as a cyclist isn't challenged anymore. People know that I ride bikes. A lot of people, that's all they know about me. Um, and people know I go on these big rides and they like sort of think of me in that way. But at that time I thought nobody would ever think of me that way. So I do hope that the work that myself and others are doing allows people to immediately feel like they're a cyclist just because they like to ride their bike. I was definitely trying to prove myself to myself and to other people. And I noticed that still sometimes happens a lot less now. Um, now I'm at the point where I've gone on some of the big trips and, and uh, the friends that I usually go on those big trips with and myself are kind of not over it completely. We still want to go on the big trips and do the goals, but you know, now it's like awesome if we can just ride a few miles and stay at a hotel, which we would have like never done before. <laughs> so, so I think maybe that comes with age too. Like, you're getting old, Kaylee. Yeah, you just I'm just kidding. Like, you're you're near twenties. It's so funny. So you, <laughs> you know, I turned forty <laughs> this year, this hey, month. Congratulations. Thanks. So tell me what cycling does for you now, like. What's it like to ride a bike? What do you get from it? Why do you do it? I'm just really curious because I'm very bike curious right now. Like I just, I really want to get a bike. That's my, my bucket list right now. Yeah. I think the coolest part about biking is that it lets you be in certain places longer than if you drove through them. Like that, that's like one of the, the big things that I don't, I don't see people talking about is like when you go, like I got to ride around Crater Lake uh, National Park. You know, they they close the road to, to just for cyclists to ride around it two weekends of the year. And so a few years ago we went and if you went with your car, you would have just driven around. It's like a 35 mile loop and it's beautiful and you would have seen it and you would have stopped and taken pictures. You probably would have spent like two hours there. But because we were cycling and we were with friends we were stopping a lot for snacks. We spent like eight hours biking around the rim and it was so great to be there for so long and to like experience that. And so I think that's like, that's a big reason why I like cycling is that it is slower. 
I try to remind myself of that when I'm on like really big climbs going really slow. It's like, okay, you like this. Like, <laughs> this is, this is why you do this. But I think there's other reasons too. Like I, I definitely love to look at the map later and see how far I went. And that's probably maybe why I started riding really long routes and why I still like that is like, it's so cool how far I can get with everything I need to survive strapped to my bike. And the only power that's moving us forward is like me and my food. I really like repurposing roads that were meant for cars or especially now that I live in Oregon, like a lot of the gravel roads we're on were meant for timber harvesting and using those roads instead of for extractive industry, which is, you know, the purpose they serve. And, and uh, that's, that's fine. But um, using them as a source of like fun and just simply to recreate is, is really cool. So I think there's a lot of reasons, especially riding gravel or mountain bike trails lately, um, because there's not so many cars you can ride with all your friends, like in a line, just time to talk or time to like, listen to a podcast. I didn't pay her to say this. <laughs> listen to this podcast. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I think those, there's so many reasons, probably I offered too many reasons, but I can just see the joy, like in your face as you, um, you guys can't see Kaylee. I, I can see her right now. She's just got this giant grin. <laughs> Biking, hiking, climbing, surfing, these are activities that should bring us joy. It's so evident when talking to Kaylee about cycling that she loves it with her whole being. Being outside and watching the world go by as she pedals, it just makes her happy. When we come back, Kaylee tells us about a bike journey she took across Alaska to gather stories from locals about the impacts of climate change. Plus, you'll hear about the other activism she's doing and her tips for anyone wanting to get into cycling. Supporting the belief that a life outdoors is a life well lived, having an Icon Pass in your pocket unlocks a road trip ready family of unique ski destinations. Across more than 40 Icon Pass destinations, the mountain community can explore wide open spaces, cut endless lines through fresh mountain air, and discover new adventures with old friends. So whether you're home mountain bound or ready for road trip rambles this winter, the best adventure is always the next adventure. On sale now, every 2020-2021 Icon Pass comes with adventure assurance, giving you the confidence to ride. Discover pass options and plan for adventure at iconpass.com. That's I-K-O-N-P-A-S-S dot com. We all know what it's like to be inspired by the landscape around us. And few trails stand out in North America, like the Pacific Crest Trail. With 2,650 miles, the Pacific Crest Trail provides a wide variety of terrain over its epic expanse. And when we're in front of ever-changing trails, you need your shoes to be able to step up to the challenge. It's that need for versatility that inspired Danner's new hiking shoe, the Trail 2650. Built to move quickly and confidently through the terrain you're choosing, the Trail 2650 can easily fill the role of a lightweight hiker or a trainer. For Danner, this meant looking to lightweight materials that could withstand the demands of the trail while still keeping comfort and stability in mind, whether you're out for a day hike, going on a backpacking trip, 
or simply navigating some technical terrain. Feeling stable when you're hiking allows you to focus on the world around you. Whenever the timing's right to get back out there, you'll want to be ready to say yes to adventure. The Trail 2650 keeps shifting weather conditions in mind, which is why it comes with a lightweight mesh lining or a waterproof, breathable Gore-Tex option. So keep your eyes focused on that next trek ahead of you, knowing that the foundation you need to get out there can be found on your own two feet. The rest is up to you. To find out more and see the Trail 2650 series, visit danner.com or rei.com. Back in 2018, Kaylee and her friend, Brooke Larson, biked from the southern coast of Alaska all the way to the northern coast. Their mission was to interview local residents about the impact of climate change and extractive industries that take raw materials like oil from the earth. The trip consisted of 500 miles on paved roads and 500 miles on gravel roads and took the women five weeks to complete. You've had some wild ideas when it comes to cycling. You had this wild idea to bike a thousand miles from Seward, which is somewhere in Alaska, to Dead Horse, which is, please help me. <laughs> yeah, up on the Arctic Ocean. Okay, so when, why, how? Yeah. Heck so yeah. In 2018, Lael Wilcox, um, who's a, oh, yeah. a really successful and uh, amazing adventure cyclist uh, has done a lot of the famous bikepacking routes, the fastest, real badass. She uh, had put together this women bikepacking scholarship uh, that was meant to support a single woman to ride a thousand miles somewhere in Alaska. And my friend and I, Brooke Larson, the year before had gone on a trip uh, where we interviewed people about climate change and how they were being impacted in rural communities <laughs> in the Southwest United States. And she did this, Brooke's master's thesis was this ride in the Southwest. And so I went with her on part of that. And we thought, uh, you know, the scholarship was meant for one woman, but we had a lot of bikepacking gear already. And a lot of the award would have been gear that we didn't need two of to make the trip happen. Yeah. And so we put forward a proposal to do a similar ride um, from Seward, which is a coastal town uh, south in Alaska to the just straight across. It's kind of an unimaginative route, but just straight across uh, to the very north and Dead Horse, which is right on the Arctic Ocean. And, um, and 500 miles of that route approximately is gravel. Um, once you get north of Fairbanks, it's, you know, like ice road truckers, it's like that road, but it's in the summer, it's gravel instead of ice. Uh, and so we put that route forward, but the primary point of the trip was to interview people. I guess I shouldn't say primary there, you know, biking was one of the primary points, but, uh, the other point was to interview people about their experience with climate change, um, or with extractive industry, like direct impacts that were happening, uh, especially up in the Arctic. You guys are thoughtful. I love that. Yeah. So we put that route together and proposed our trip and then we were selected. So, <laughs> so then in uh, July, 2018, we flew up to Anchorage and with the help of a ton of amazing Alaskan 
people who supported us and let us stay in their homes and fed us um, and let us talk to them about their stories. We did the trip and rode across Alaska. So that was pretty cool. Pretty uh, amazing experience to get to have. How old were you when you did this trip? I guess 25. Oh my gosh, how fun and what a good experience. Yes. <laughs> so this is this sounds amazing. So so what were some of the highs of the trip and what were some of the challenges? Yeah, I think the highs just seeing Alaska like that, um getting to spend so much time in uh you know, we were up there for 5 weeks and a lot of that we weren't biking, a lot of that we were in communities. But who gets to take five weeks to just go see a place like that? You know, it's such a privilege. Um, that was a, a huge highlight. Getting to meet people, uh, having so many people like accept us into their their homes and feed us, you know, salmon and just like amazing. You never, you know, if you just go on a road trip, you're probably not going to spend time and somebody who, you know, lives in Alaska's home, they're probably not going to feed you salmon from their recent catch. But if you're biking, it's something about biking, people just like accept you into their spaces and share, share their stories. It's just people kind of feel the weight of your journey because you've tried so hard, you've put so much effort into getting to them. And so that was, yeah, that was wonderful. Spending so much time with my close friend one on one, you know, was so great. At that point, we had moved apart from each other. So getting to spend five weeks with a, a close friend is just so fun. Wait, really quickly. So with your like best girlfriend, you must have had, I mean, there must have been some funny joke moments between oh, you man. two. <laughs> We we rarely, you know, we travel really well together, which is why we keep going on these trips. And we rarely have any conflict, but you get so tired when you're biking. And um, and in Alaska, like the sun never sets really in the summer. So we would bike like well into the night. And one night we just like could not agree on how to set the tent up or like where it should go. <laughs> we had this whole argument about where the how the tent should be aligned and which way the slope, the road was. I mean, it was almost a completely flat space. There's so many stories. So, <laughs> and you probably busted on each other like a oh, lot yeah. of the trip. <laughs> yeah. So the hard points. <laughs> One of the hardest points. I just I don't know why it comes to the top of my mind. Uh, we'd been doing a lot of really big days in a row, and we had planned to camp at this place. When we got there, it was clear like it was not a real campsite and there was no running water there anymore, even though it said there was going to be. So it was a real low point because we were out of water, but we thought, you know, Alaska's like really full of water. So we figured that we would find water the next day. We quickly in the first 10 miles with no water, we passed like multiple rivers, but they were like thousands of feet down giant ravines and canyons. So we couldn't get to water and it was pouring rain. (laughs) So we're standing in the pouring rain with rivers everywhere, but we can't get any water. And we had to drink. Yeah, we drank water out of a puddle. Because we just like, we're so worried. Wow. That was definitely a low point. But the other, I think the challenge of hearing um, so many like visceral stories about uh, people's experience with a climate that's rapidly changing, it was tough. It was tougher than I think we'd 
thought it would be. Just yes, yeah, staring staring climate change in the face, talking to people who've already lost their their homes, often like ancestral homelands from sea level rise, and people fighting against drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And it can feel like the people of Alaska are like victims of climate change, uh, but they every time we spoke to them, they would change that narrative and and talk about themselves as sort of warriors against climate change, like people who had taken it upon themselves to to fight what was happening to them, even if they weren't the the reason it was happening to them. So it was uplifting, but it's also it's also really hard to hear all those stories day after day. Yeah. What are you guys going to do with those stories? Well, we've done a few blog posts, a few posts on websites. We have all the recordings still. We did do a, a small podcast like right when we got back. A friend has a, a had a podcast, then she put it, a small episode together. I think that trip, more than the trip before, I know that Brooke was able to, on the trip before, um, write a, a book she's still working on based on the Southwest stories that she heard. We hadn't planned to write a book out of the Alaska stories. We'd planned more to do these blog posts. I think there's still a lot we could do. And on the one hand, I feel like a little bit like we failed in not doing more with those stories in the first two years. Like we did some, but feeling like, you know, we could always do more. But it's also, there's also a challenge of like telling other people's stories. And we left that trip feeling less like we had a concrete message to share, I guess. We've tried to come back to talking about what that concrete message would be and had a hard time identifying it. You know, when you go on these long trips, you kind of hope like at the end, you'll come out with like one piece of wisdom or something that makes for an easy Instagram post maybe. But yeah, I... I don't feel like I can articulate exactly what the takeaway was. If I can um, maybe suggest one one interesting note is, you know, I think about Cheryl Strayed and she didn't write wild until years and years after she completed that track. So sometimes the work you do doesn't hit you or come out until much later in life. And that's okay. It affected you. So it doesn't mean you have to do anything with it. I was just really curious, but you know, I think a lot of times when we do work like that, it it comes out later in life in different ways. And and you've written already many books in your head, and that's that's what matters. Like you did the work, and it's now informing a lot of your decisions today. So be nice to yourself. I <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say. That. Okay. <laughs> From biking across Alaska to being a vocal body-positive athlete, Kaylee is good at pushing her limits. Lots of sports can be intimidating, but I personally think cycling is one of the most intimidating sports out there. Kaylee's goal is to break down some of those obstacles and encourage folks like me and folks of all sizes to get outside with her. She offers some amazing resources for cyclists of bigger sizes on her social media platforms. You know, you've got this great platform now, and, and I'm really curious how you're using it to encourage other people to bike. I've seen it, but maybe you can just tell people listening how you're doing it. Yeah, it's been like a real privilege to have people follow my social media accounts just to hear about body size inclusivity and cycling. And so I've been working with another fat cyclist, Marley Blonsky, to do workshops. Um, they were originally meant to be in person, sort of catered to specific groups, but Due to COVID, we moved it online and 
I'm happy we did that because we learned like how many more people we could connect with via uh, these sort of online workshops. So I think the goal would be to like continue those things, continue when it's possible to do in-person workshops with with certain groups talking about the issues most relevant to them. And we're also going to start a ride series specifically catered towards people in larger bodies, um, providing some you know, equipment and some guidance on how to get into cycling or for, for people in larger bodies already into cycling, catering some rides towards them. So we've got a, a small pot of money to, to do those things with thanks to this awesome GoFundMe that we used to, to fund some travel that ended up not being able to happen. But I think because that didn't happen, now we can just do that much, uh, that much more and reach even more people. So we're kind of waiting right now to see, you know, what I think we all, <laughs> we all are, but it sounds like you're doing really good things with the, with the time. You know, one of the things you talked about in the beginning, and I just find it really interesting, especially because I come from the surf industry. And I mean, there's countless jokes we've made about spandex over the course of our lives, like every cyclist does. And I tend to have like the mind of a 12 year old boy and tell lots of PG-13 jokes, <laughs> but I'm just curious, like, what did you learn about cycling equipment and, and how it can be improved and what brands are doing well? Yeah, I, so I said earlier, I'm in a lot of ways privileged as a person in a larger body to be in what's called small fat, um, sizes like 1X to 2X. And so a lot of cycling brands like Pearl Izumi um, comes to mind, Terry, they, uh, these prominent brands actually offer up to a two or three X in some of their shorts, um, or bibs, you know, padded cycling shorts. And so that includes me. Um, and so for me, that's like the central piece of clothing that's going to matter to making a ride more comfortable is having these padded shorts. I don't typically wear cycling jerseys when I ride. I just wear like a a t-shirt. Is that because cycling shirts are just not cute, but they're getting better? <laughs> they're getting better, I think. But <laughs> they are like, yeah, they're definitely very like sporty, I guess. It's not really my like. They're uh, getting better. I'm seeing some <laughs> cute female brands pop up. But oh, yeah. They're a lot of them are just like logoed with like weird companies. And you're like, I'm not going to wear like X cell phone on my yeah, yeah. mesh shirt. <laughs> yeah, I think there's an idea too. Like I wear padded shorts. That's what makes me feel comfortable. But a lot of people don't, of all shapes and sizes, do not wear padded Whoa. shorts, even when they go on really long rides. It's really up to the to the person what makes you feel comfortable. For me, padded shorts are a necessity. But And so in that way, like that is a limitation of the cycling clothing industry to stop at uh, a 3x. It's great that we've gotten to that point. Uh, that's the, the point that a lot of outdoor recreation sizing has stopped at. But who is that not including? There are some triathlete brands. Our sports offers further extended sizes up to, I think, a 5x. So um, there's brands that are, are working to be more inclusive. I think the biggest thing I've noticed for me doing adventure cycling is like the lack of waterproof gear for people in plus sizes is really limiting. Um, there's some brands that have started doing waterproof, you know, rain jackets, they're, but they're mostly for like urban settings. And so getting a material like a Gore-Tex in a true two or three X is like 
I haven't been able to find it. Those are limitations that are going to stop people from doing maybe the more extreme side of, of cycling. But the good news about cycling and a lot of other outdoor recreation is like, you don't really need certain clothes. You can wear, you know, yoga pants and a shirt uh, or jeans. You know, I ride in my jeans all the time around town, kind of just to like show like, I mean, it's comfortable too, but I like to show people and post photos of myself in street clothes. Like you can wear anything and ride your bike, you know, and as kids, we, we do. What I've learned about bike equipment, I think is a little bit more limiting for people in larger bodies. I didn't know until I started doing outreach work that bikes have weight limits. And, and, and I actually learned that one of my bikes, I exceeded the weight limit, the bike that I took across Alaska, especially with my gear on the bike. And so, you know, that exceeding that weight limit, it, you know, it's serious, but you put yourself at risk, especially on materials like carbon. So um, other bikes made of steel, sometimes aluminum, like they have a much higher weight limit but you still have to think about bike wheels. Those have a, a more limited weight limit, especially like really good wheels, like the racing wheels have less spokes. They, they hold less weight, but those things can be fixed. You know, a steel bike with like a hand-built wheel with a lot of spokes is going to be expensive, but it's going to allow uh, for people of all sizes to get on that bike. So I've seen a, a lot of fat activists posting about uh, tricycles. So some people in larger bodies are going to feel more comfortable on a tricycle. I haven't uh, ridden a tricycle, so I can't really speak Sounds to, kind to of that fun, experience. To be honest, that does sound fun, and they come with like a really cool basket. So. I mean, <laughs> you had me at the basket. I always pick my bike yeah. based on the basket. It's not. I know a way to pick bike, but. It sounds like you've learned so much. And I thought it was really interesting what you said about saddles, because I think there's this misconception that like, if you're in a bigger body, you need a bigger saddle. And you said, no, that's not true. Yeah. I think that's a, for me, the opposite is true because the saddle is about where your your sit bones fall, about how wide those are set. And that's a really easy thing to find out at your local bike shop. If you just, you do this kind of sit test and it shows where your, your sit bones fall a saddle, like a cushier wide saddle. I think people see that and they think, oh, that's going to be more comfortable than that saddle with no padding. That's very skinny. And really on a longer ride, especially the opposite is true. Like you want to reduce friction in that area. And those, those smaller saddles are made to support your, really support your butt and your hips in a certain way. And so it's not about uh, how much you weigh or how large your body is at certain points. It's, it's really about those bones and getting that saddle fit right. So that's something that's going to be different to each person though. So uh, sometimes people ask like, oh, what saddle do you use? And that's not necessarily helpful to everybody unless you knew that our sit bones were the same, same width. <laughs> uh, then it would be really helpful. Any advice to people who want to start biking? They're not sure where to start, where to get clothes, all that good stuff. Yeah. I think if you already have a bike, just get out there. You know, you're a cyclist if you bike one mile or 10 miles or 20, you know, it doesn't matter how far you go or where you go or the type of biking you do or what bike you have, like no matter what, you're, you're a bicyclist. So I think just getting out there and doing it is the first, the first thing that I'd say. Um, if you are having questions about how to find gear, uh, that's appropriate. Finding a comfortable local bike shop or reaching out to to myself or folks like Marley Blonsky that 
are cyclists in larger bodies that know these things. If you need clothing recommendations, we've we've been putting articles together and and we hopefully will be posting our recorded workshop soon with some of those those brands and pieces of advice. That's awesome. Kaylee, thank you so much for your work in the world. Like you've made me want to go ride a bike. Yeah. And go to Alaska. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What's the prettiest ride you've ever done? Oh, gosh. There's so many. Maybe the Crater Lake ride. That sounds amazing. How, what was the longest one you've done in a day? Uh, about 90 miles. <sighs> Favorite place to ride right now in Oregon? Uh, Alsea Falls, mountain biking. What's your favorite snack to eat on the, on the bike? Oh, oh, applesauce packets. Oh. <laughs> Those like little kid things. <laughs> Favorite bike gear? Oh, a speaker. <laughs> to listen Actually, to music? Like, yeah, <laughs> when, only when I'm off of paved roads. Oh, uh, fun. Another favorite piece of bike gear? Probably the bike itself. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a pretty good, important piece of gear. What? <laughs> you have such a good sense of humor. I always think of cyclists as like these serious dudes on the 101, <laughs> just like riding up the coast. Glaring at cars driving by. I mean, that, that's just what I see. Yeah. And and you just sure. have this like very lighthearted sense of humor. Have you always had that? I think so. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm Any uh, advice on, on cultivating our humor muscles a little bit more? Yeah. Maybe just like laugh a lot, you know, spend some time laughing. I, I laugh all the time. Uh, even when things are really dark. I'm laughing, which is sometimes people see as like an uh, inappropriate response. <laughs> but I think I just laugh a lot and it keeps things lighter. It makes it makes biking more fun. And that's the point of biking, I think, is to have fun. I so appreciate that. And I cannot wait to ride a bike and laugh with you one yes. day. <laughs> just because you might not see people that look like you outside, doesn't mean the outdoors aren't for you. No matter your size, your race, your gender, or your sexual orientation, moving your body is important and it feels good. Finding a way to do it that makes you feel joyful and helps you find a community, well, that's even better. Thank you so much to Kaylee for coming on the show, for sharing your story, and for making me laugh. I really appreciate the work you're doing. And just so you know, Kaylee's a total badass. She's currently getting her doctorate in natural resource management at Oregon State University. She's also looking to move from gravel roads to mountain bike packing. And she hopes to tackle the Oregon Timber Trail and the Three Sisters Three Rivers route. You can find more about Kaylee's workshops and adventures on her Instagram at Kornhauser Sauce. That's at K-O-R-N-H-A-U-S-E-R. S-A-U-C-E, as well as on Marley Blonsky's blog, Life on Two Wheels.space. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, written and edited by Annie Fassler, and produced by Chelsea Davis. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby, and our presenting sponsor this season is Subaru. As always, we appreciate when you subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you listen. And remember, some of the best adventures often happen 
when you follow your wildest ideas. <laughs>